0: June is Men's Health Month. Did you know that, Jason? I didn't know that. Yep, it is. And,
1: <laughs> and that's the podcast. Thank you so much. <laughs> See you next time.
0: <laughs> and then the rest of the episode is just dead air. With, <laughs> just to make people think it's a full episode. And Really, there's nothing more to say about no,
1: it. Just me going dead air, dead air. He's just going to sing different variations of the Pink Panther theme song.
0: That would be weird. welcome to hell. That would be very strange. It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson.
1: It's Men's Health Month. I had no idea that there was anything even remotely dedicated to the subject of men's health.
0: Well, you know how it works with these uh, monthly, weekly, daily themes.
1: Yeah, they just kind of make shit up to sell stuff.
0: Could be, or or to raise awareness.
1: <laughs> Here's some testosterone booster, guys. That's, I'm just waiting for the barrage of testosterone booster ads to flood my Instagram feed of just like, hey, can't get it up? Are you not doing as many reps in the gym? Not getting morning wood? Well, you need some 5X triple alpha male testosterone booster. Like, I actually already get those ads, but I feel like the uptick in those ads is just going to go through the roof.
0: Well, this could be an interesting discussion. I- from what I know, which is very little of Men's Health Month, it seems to be very centered around physical health. But of course, I wanted to dive into the mental health side of it. And I was specifically inspired after seeing this book called The Man They Wanted Me to Be. And the subtitle is Toxic Masculinity in a Crisis of Our Own Making. It's by an author named Jared Yates Sexton. And I have not read the book yet, but I have read a little bit about it, and I was really drawn into this concept of toxic masculinity. So that's what I wanted to explore today.
1: Well, I think it's a great topic because I actually have been reading some articles, and we had mentioned this in some previous episodes about some pro athletes and specifically some basketball players, because that's my favorite sport, discussing their mental health issues. And Yesterday, in fact, I was reading an article by Kevin Love, who is one of the forwards for the Cleveland Cavaliers, who we would love to have on the podcast. That's You talk about dream guests and people. I, I would absolutely love to have Kevin here on the podcast with us. He was writing an article, and he had written an article a couple years ago in the Players Tribune that we will link to in the show notes at wellevator.com. Our website is W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And yesterday he was talking about COVID-19 and mental health because the NBA has been on a hiatus since March 11th when one of the players of the Utah Jazz tested positive and the league has been shutting down. So in this kind of follow-up article, he was talking about not only that he's been kind of de facto the face of mental health for the NBA and pro sports now, but was talking about in terms of masculinity, that there is still such a massive cultural stigma around, he said he's noticed with teammates and players in the NBA, there's a stigma around weakness that if you talk about the fact that you're struggling with anxiety or depression or panic attacks, that was one of the things that he was going through was panic attacks. And he said he's experienced depression his whole life. He said that a lot of men are, first of all, reticent to discuss it because of of them being viewed as weak mentally. And in a league where there's a lot of cutthroat competition and you want to be perceived as The alpha, right? You know, that's very, very high stakes at that level of the NBA. He said, not only that, though, this fear of being perceived or labeled as weak, it's a monetary fear because he said, general managers and owners and people who run the sports organizations, you know, the individual teams, which are corporations, they're money making companies, that they are afraid that the people who would hire them or sign them to a contract as a player would be concerned about their long-term value if they knew that they had clinical depression or panic attacks or anxiety or PTSD or bipolar or anything kind of under the umbrella of mental health. And I just thought it was so interesting that those are two things that for men, I think there's still a lot of shame and stigma to discuss when we are feeling weak, when we are having a tough moment, when we need help. There's a lot of old conditioning, a lot of old, you said toxic masculinity, Whitney, of like, suck it up just suck it up and get back up. Don't cry. Don't you dare cry. I'll give you something to cry about. You know, there's that old paradigm that I remember, you know, in my family, as much as I love my grandfather, Walter, you know, I kind of remember him saying things like that of just like, wow, you know, don't show emotion, don't show weakness. And, and certainly, as I summarize this long rant, Just looking at Kevin Love and a lot of the athletes out there, there still is very much that stigma of don't cry, don't show emotion, don't show weakness. And unfortunately, the stigma of mental health is tied into that.
0: Absolutely. And I did a lot of reading on this. There's a lot to be uncovered. And I had to rein myself in because I could easily go down the research rabbit hole with a lot of these things. And I'm going to drop some of the links that I read in the show notes at wellelevator.com. And the book included that I mentioned, which I have not read yet, but I've read some summaries of it and some discussions of it. And I think it's really interesting. I wanted to start by sharing a definition of toxic masculinity. And I found one from the Good Men Project, which defines it as a narrow and repressive description of manhood, designating manhood as defined by violence, sex, status, and aggression. It's the cultural ideal of manliness where strength is everything while emotions are a weakness, where sex and brutality are yardsticks by which men are measured, while supposedly, quote, feminine traits, which can range from emotional vulnerability to simply not being hypersexual, are the means by which your status as a, quote, man can be taken away.
1: That's a wonderful definition.
0: And some of the articles that I've read about this have some different traits that we've come to associate with men, especially in the United States, and those could be quickness to anger, violence, pride and ignorance, self-protective stoicism, dead-eyed, predatory staring, aggression, racism, misogyny, homophobia, manly, in curiosity, interesting, and insecurity, gruff demeanor, constant threats, boasted about his money and power, and bullying of opponents among many things.
1: Sounds old school. I mean, what comes up for me with that secondary description, Whitney, is is very much kind of that. I don't know, for lack of a better word, you know, nuclear era nineteen fifties man of just don't cry, don't show emotion don't let on any vulnerabilities, just put your head down and work and go to the grindstone and just suck it up and make a living. I mean, all these phrases are just so outdated and so archaic in terms of, I kind of look at it as a non-integrated approach to masculinity. And when I say non-integrated, it reminds me of conversations, a lot of conversations that I've had with my therapist, Gary. In in a lot of those conversations we talked about, the polarity of masculine and feminine, and not necessarily even we're talking about the physicality of a masculine or feminine body, but more of the energetics of what does it mean to be masculine? What does it mean to be feminine? And how there are these binary traits that somehow get assigned to masculine or feminine that seem to be in a lot of people's minds, very fixed, you know, that in the masculine sense, there's drive, there's ambition, as you said, aggression, a very violent one-pointed focus sometimes very competitive and those are assigned as as masculine traits whereas you detailed you know the more feminine traits are emotive and soft and protective and open and i think that what i've begun to identify in myself through a lot of therapy with you know my therapist gary as i mentioned is that i feel like i have not necessarily intentionally, but sort of defaulted to some sort of middle ground where I I think the phrase that I used with him a couple of years ago was energetically androgynous. And he laughed. He said, that's really good because I feel with that I'm an incredibly sensitive man and I have been my entire life. I mean, even as a little boy, I remember feeling all of these emotions and feeling so deeply and feeling shamed by a lot of the young men and boys that I grew up in, in school, because noticing that they were embodying that sort of old school, toxic masculinity of fighting all the time and being very aggressive and violent, the things you mentioned. And I never wanted to get in fights and I never wanted to beat people up and I never wanted to push people around. And I remember having so many mixed emotions around that. And it's something that even as an adult man, I've had to do a lot of unraveling around, you know, of, Does this mean I'm too effeminate? Does this mean I'm embodying too much feminine energy? Does this mean I'm gay? What does this mean? And as I got older, I remember struggling with a lot of these thoughts and feelings.
0: And that makes sense. I think one of the topics that comes up in the book based on one of the articles and reviews of it that I read is about socialization and how there's a lot of teaching gender expectations And for men, it's very much about weeding out any feminine characteristics, including things like sensitivity, curiosity, creativity, weakness, and a desire to communicate past purposes of utility. And the author points out that with socializing like this, a man's tools for solving personal problems are few.
1: Well, it kind of leaves you stranded on an island of your own creation. You know, in the sense of don't ask for help, don't show weakness, don't admit you're struggling or suffering. And that's why it always makes me kind of scratch my chin. But not surprising when I talk to friends of mine, female friends, that are like, oh, yeah, I want to go to therapy, but my boyfriend doesn't want to go. I want to go to therapy, but my husband refuses. He says, we can figure it out. We're fine. We're fine. And I've heard those kind of stories ad infinitum throughout my entire life of, certain men just being very, very resistant to admit a, that there's a problem or something that needs to be fixed or healed rather. And this very single pointed attitude of like, no, 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 we can figure it out. We can do it. We can, I don't need anybody. I don't need to go pay for that. I don't need to pay for therapy or the old school thing of like (laughs) the guy cuts himself in the kitchen and he's bleeding profusely. And he's just, and it's funny because like I've done this, you know, being a chef, I've cut myself an innumerable number of times and, and, I've never taken myself into the emergency room. There's been a couple cuts that I probably ought to have taken myself in, in retrospect, but it was that old school. This was years ago of like, nah, it'll heal. It's fine. I don't need need any stitches. No, no, no. Fuck that. And that's a symptom of what you're describing, Whitney, of men, this prototypical toxic masculine mindset of, I can do it on my own. I don't need anybody else. I need to prove that I can do it. And not ask for help and not ask for support. And that becomes dangerous, though, when we talk about, you mentioned physical health, but mental health, that if a guy's having chest pains, if a guy's having certain repeated aches or pains or is is struggling with depression, that sort of lonely man on his own island figuring it out does not work. And in the ways that I've experienced in my life, specifically around my clinical depression, I didn't want to admit that I was suffering that bad for years. Because I was ashamed to admit it. I was afraid of being perceived as weak. And I also had that attitude of, I can figure this out. I can eat healthier. I can go meditate. I can do yoga, blah, blah, blah. I don't need therapy. Fuck that. So I say that from personal experience of having had to wrestle with a lot of this old paradigm masculinity that had I shed that or let it go or had started to integrate maybe into more of the receptive feminine earlier, I probably wouldn't have struggled as long as I did. Honestly,
0: it's so fascinating. In one of the articles I was reading, which I believe this came from tolerance.org, which I will link to the specific article, cuz I think they they actually did a, a multi-part series on this subject matter. And one line that I felt like really resonated with me said that in a culture that equates masculinity with physical power, some men and boys will feel like they are failing at being a man.
1: Yeah, completely. You know, what I've thought about for years is not just the subjugation of the feminine to live up to an ideal in our society, but the subjugation of everyone to live up to a certain ideal. And I remember this paradigm of the superhero growing up. You know, you had. Superman and Batman and all of these ultra masculine superheroes with six packs and big rippling muscles and the ability to jump over buildings and fly through the air and throw cars around. And it was this idea that this very, to me, non-subtle reinforcement of if you want to protect the people you love and you want to be celebrated and you want to be more powerful than anyone and defeat the bad guys and save whatever the world... You've got to be this Adonis. You've got to be this Herculean figure of rippling muscles and stoic masculinity and no emotions and swoop in to save the day. That paradigm, that archetype has existed for millennia. You think about the damsel in distress and the the white knight on his steed coming in to save the woman and save everyone. And again, doing that through violence and power and killing people. I mean, this is not a new concept of the ultra muscular, powerful strength and violence wielding man coming to quote, save the day. And then of course you feel the sense of inadequacy as a man, if you're not this big, muscular, violent, stoic person, because that's the archetype that we saw in Greek mythology, Roman mythology, the comic books we read, you know, there were very few examples other than maybe star Wars, which we can link to the episode we did about mental health and star Wars in the show notes. Great, great episode. That someone like Luke Skywalker was not this giant muscular being, of course there you know there was violence in that saga, but most of the archetypes that I remember receiving as a child and a young man were very much in that vein Whitney of a guy doing it on its own. he's this big, rippling, strong, violent person, and that's how you protect and save people and if you're not that, then you must be weak and useless. It's introduced at a very young age for little boys, and also the other side of it is women in those archetypes being the ones needing saving. Like, I need a man to come save me. I need a husband. I need a protector. I need someone with lots of money. So actually, that imprinting and that conditioning for men and women starts very young.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it makes sense just like anything in our society is where we're learning from the figures in our lives, whether they're parents or their teachers or their friends or all of the above, this combination. Actually some of the articles that I was reading got in depth about studies that have been done on men that have grown up without father figures. And I know that's a big thing for you, Jason. And I actually didn't record much of my notes on that specific part, but I feel like you would probably find it super interesting and a lot of different perspectives on how having a father in your life can impact you as a man and how you act as a child and how you develop throughout your life and having different father figures, whether they're the person that, you know, your actual biological father or just a father figure in your life. Like for you, you have Michael, your mentor, and also who's in essence become a father figure for you. And I know that that's Really shaped a lot of your life in the past. I don't know how many years you've known him—ten years or something like that.
1: Yeah, a decade. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you bring this up, Wit, because I've I've thought about both sides of the coin in terms of me not growing up with my father, Andres, around. And you know, the one side of that coin and the one side of that perspective is that he was a very aggressive. He became rather a very violent, aggressive, unstable mentally human being where he was addicted to drugs and alcohol and and ultimately the disillusion of my relationship with my mother was due to the fact that she didn't feel safe having him in our family unit anymore. And I mean, I could go on about some pretty horrifying stories. Perhaps we'll, you know, we can save that for either later in this podcast if it goes that direction. But there were a lot of very painful harrowing situations that I remember as a child with him and it got to the point where he became just so erratic and unstable and addicted that we simply couldn't have him around and you know unfortunately that became his undoing and he died from his addictions truly and and poisoning himself but the one side of the coin is looking at that as a beneficial thing because had he remained in our family unit in the house I would have been likely continually exposed to alcoholism and drug abuse and anger and physical violence toward me and my mother, which was already happening. So on the one side of the coin, it's like, how would I have turned out as a man having that level of imprinting of violence, abuse, and addiction all the time? But I also think on the other side of that coin, because I didn't have a solid father figure growing up, that a lot of the archetypical initiations that a young man could go through and have someone to lean on to discuss these coming-of-age type of situations. I didn't have anyone there. There were a lot of situations I didn't feel comfortable talking to my mom about, you know, sexuality or violence or competition. A lot of these things I mentioned, the, these aspects of, of aggression and violence and sports and competition and sexuality, I don't know. There, there were just certain things I didn't feel comfortable bringing in my mom, and I felt a little bit lost. It was This idea, again, of being on a lonely island thinking, I've got to figure this out for myself. And I don't think that I had a proper initiation into certain aspects of courage, certain aspects of taking risks, certain aspects of managing my anger and my confusion and my pain in different ways because I didn't have that masculine guidance until a decade ago, as you mentioned. I, I met my mentor, Michael, who has been... More of a father to me than any other person in my life. He and I discuss it. You know, he knows that I view him as a father. I see him more as my dad than I did my own father. And he leads with an element of trust and faith and compassion and generosity and strength and those things that I never had as imprints from a dad growing up. So, in some ways, Whitney, I feel like I'm blossoming into certain aspects of my masculinity later in life. Because now I'm having specific initiations and specific guidance that I didn't have when I was younger. It's really interesting to see how that's playing out on my timeline much later in life.
0: Yeah, it really is fascinating. What's also interesting listening to you, Jason, is I have perceived your story with your dad as you as a child thinking that he was abandoning you. But then when you were just speaking now, it sounded like your mom made the choice to ask him to leave. And so now I'm wondering, like, is that both true? Is it just a matter of perception as a child versus an adult? Has something shifted in you where you're now positioning it that way?
1: It's definitely a perspective shift from childhood to adulthood because as a child, I didn't have all that information. I, I wasn't privy to the intricacies of their intimate relationship. You know what I mean? And I didn't understand the level of first of all, drug abuse or dysfunction or the aspects of his personality and his mental health. I didn't, as a very young three, four-year-old, I had no idea those things were going on, right? So my compartmentalization mentally was, I must not be good enough because it was this strange belief system I adopted that mom and dad, from what I know and the stories they told me, were happy and balanced and had a great relationship. And then I came here and now it's all going to shit. Now, that's because as a child, I didn't have the backstory and all the information as I grew up and was able to talk to my mom about it and saw my father in prison and talked to him. And that's, again, a whole nother slew of stories. You know, I got to piece together like, oh, okay it wasn't about me not being good enough. It wasn't about me. My presence as a child creating a fracture in their relationship. It was that he was already battling addiction. He was already battling abuse. And to be honest, a lot of the abandonment issues and pain that he had received by his father leaving the family that he never resolved psychologically. So once I started as an adult to piece these things together, I thought, oh, he was just simply taking the unresolved, unhealed wounds of his lineage from his father and his grandfather, and God knows how far back of that toxic masculinity, and me understanding how the relationship with his father played out. And because my dad didn't have the tools spiritually or psychologically to heal himself and probably didn't care to seek those out, the perpetuation of violence and adultery and pain and abuse just continued and continued and continued. And once I realized that, I thought, oh, this really wasn't about abandonment at all. This was about having compassion for a father of mine who had deep, deep unhealed wounds, demons, if you will, want to call them that, that he tried to conquer through drugs and alcohol and adultery and gambling and making lots of money and being famous. And he was just trying to fill this very deep, deep festering wound inside his soul that he didn't know any other way to fix. And that's when I started to have compassion for him. And I started to let go of the deep hatred and anger and resentment I felt for my father that I was caring for so many years. And once I started to shift into a level of compassion of with the wounding and the pain that he had gone through as a child with his dad and his grandfather and all those things he experienced, it's no wonder that he acted the way he did. And through that compassion and forgiveness, I was able to like, whoa, do a lot of letting go, a lot of letting go.
0: So you visited your dad in prison? I don't think I've heard that story.
1: Yeah. So, I didn't see my father for I don't know, 12 or 14 years maybe. It was basically like I think the last time I saw my dad was sometime in the mid-80s maybe, maybe the late 80s. I can't can't quite remember. I didn't see my father through the 90s at all. And I got a notification that he was back in Michigan cuz my my dad was living in California at the time as an actor and doing all kinds of things and He was back in Michigan and a family friend said, hey, you know, your dad, your dad's in prison. I was like, what? He said, yeah, do you want to write him and maybe go see him? And mind you, I, again, I hadn't seen my, this was 2001. I hadn't seen my dad since the eighties. And so I wrote my dad a letter and he wrote back and we arranged a meeting where I went to go visit him in prison. And he was there because he was on his third or fourth DUI and they just threw him behind bars. They're like, yeah, you're, (laughs) you're done, bud. You're going to be in here for a while. So I think my dad was in there for at least a year. I don't remember the exact amount of time, but he, he was in there for at least a year after all these DUIs he had. And I visited him. I was, how old was I? 23 at the time. And I wanted to go with the intention of getting some answers. I went with this idea in my head of, I'm gonna ask my dad how things went down in our family, You know why he left, what happened, why he did what he did. And so we spent about 90 minutes together that day and I remember asking him really important questions, things that I really wanted answers to. And I remember one specific moment that was just very eye-opening and very heartbreaking to me, which was, I looked at him, you know, they have the, the whatever, the glass things with a hole, and you, you're on the phone and all that shit, just like the movies. And I said, Pop, why did you choose the life you did? Why, you know, the alcohol and the women and the drugs and all the craziness, like, why did you choose this life for yourself? And I I wanted, I really wanted an authentic answer from him. The answer I wanted was I had these demons and I had all this pain from my dad and I didn't know how to heal it. And I was fucked up and I I wanted something real. And he just, he kind of laughed and looked looked at me and he goes, I'm a wild man, son. I'm a wild man. My heart was so shattered and I was so disappointed because I didn't perceive during that whole 90-minute connection with him in that prison that anything he had to say was coming from his soul. It was like he was so out of touch with his own pain and he was so out of touch with the root of his own suffering that, again, if I look back on his behavior over the course of his life, it's no wonder he did what he did because he never allowed himself to get to the root of that suffering and and heal it. In essence, Whit, like what other decisions could he have made other than to be addicted and be an alcoholic and be abusive and all the shit that he did? It's like, this was a human who was in deep suffering and I don't even think was aware of the depth of it or even how to heal it. And when I saw him in prison that day, I was like, shit, man, I don't think this guy's going to pull himself out. There was this impression of, I don't know that he's going to pull himself out of this. I don't know that he's ever going to get the healing he needs. I don't know that he's ever going to recover from this amount of like pain and abuse and suffering that he's been through. And that was really hard for me. That was hard for me to see. And that was hard for me to experience.
0: I bet. And I don't think you've ever shared that with me before. And it's, it's so interesting to hear you chat about that, especially because I have a completely different relationship with my father, but I've also never been to prison period. So I imagine going there and and having this mission and being in that environment and being around a man that you don't know super well, but you're connected to, and then wanting something from him that you don't feel like he can provide. And I know you too, how much you want things and how intentional you are. And so I can only imagine that it it did feel like a letdown for you. And it actually leads me to something that I found really interesting in my research. One of the articles I came across was really in-depth and it's from this website called fatherly.com. And I think this is all from there. A lot of my notes came from multiple sources. And again, I will link to all of those in our show notes, which is at com. So if you, the listener, would like to dig deeper and find all the sources and all of that, that'll be there listed at the bottom of the show notes that we do. And it was this article as well as some of the others that pulled a lot of data from clinicians and social scientists and really fascinating research that had been done. And a a few things, bullet points that I put there that kind of relate back to what you're saying. And I found this was like a really big aha moment for me. So I'm so curious what you think about this, Jason. In this article, it said, the only consistent truth about masculinity has been this. Men have always feared having taken it away. Many men view masculinity as a sort of currency that can be earned and stolen rather than a fixed trait that they lash out if they're not externally validated. Because men are more valued in society, they have to watch their step in order not to lose that position to women because there's less social status attached to the feminine women may enjoy more freedom to be fluid than men. There was also a lot of research that was done around what types of men engage in dangerously toxic behavior. And they found that it was mainly young men because they were very worried about their gender status. And communities with a higher density of underprivileged young men without access to validation tend to be high crime community in which manhood is expressed through substance abuse, homophobia, sexism, harassment, extreme risk-taking, and violence. And a lot of research has found that toxic masculinity is more a sign of lack of self-worth and self-respect. Underneath all that instability and anger is a wounded little boy who is never taught to value his authentic And genuine experience of himself.
1: Wow. Wow. That hits home so hard. It hits home for multiple reasons in the sense of someone who is sensitive or artistic or creative or feels a lot in many family units to have that literally or figuratively beaten out of them as a little boy. And the other thing, I went back to sort of the initiations, Whitney you know, if you talk about gang behavior, violence, dangerous behavior, Joe Rogan on his podcast once was talking about teenage boys in America, generally speaking, just American teenage boys and said that they're the most dangerous out of control group of humans. And I would agree. And I'll say the lack of death slash courage initiations in our society, it makes complete sense to me rather that these behaviors are so common in American society. And when I say death slash courage behaviors, if you look at a lot of our ancient societies or our tribal cultures, in most of them, maybe even all of them, there was some sort of for a young man in his early teens to be taken by the elder men out into the woods, out into the wilderness, and brought in these rituals, these death rituals of, in some cultures, taking psychedelic plants, in some cultures, Leaving them out in the woods alone and forcing them to hunt on their own and and find their way back to the village, these rituals of engendering faith and self-reliance and courage and facing death at a very young age and I think through lack of initiation and through lack of these sort of trials from elder men that do love us and do care for us but do want us to build that that muscle of facing death and and fostering courage, we have like I said, gun violence. We have, I mean, going 150 miles an hour in a car on the freeway. We have extreme sports. We have kids getting into fights and killing each other. I mean, to me, it, it, it's just the lack of initiation and the lack of genuinely caring older men in this society providing mentorship to these young men. It's no wonder these things are happening because they don't have an outlet to explore their courage. They don't have an outlet to explore the edges of their aggression in a safe way. So if you don't have an outlet to explore your courage and you don't have an outlet to explore your aggression in a safe container, then you have all these things we're talking about, you know, and and there's also hormones and testosterone. I mean, I remember doing, I think I talked about this in a previous episode, like going 130 or 150 miles an hour on a motorcycle. Why? Because it was like, I wonder if I can do this and not die. I remember thinking that in my mind, I wonder if I can go this fast on a motorcycle and not die. Now, why is that? I had no initiation. I had no male figures in my life helping me build my courage, helping me build my self-worth, helping me find the edges of those things. When you don't have that, you find some pretty destructive and dangerous ways to explore it on your own.
0: Well, it also, as I said from this research, comes back around to a power struggle and how our society, especially in the United States, really emphasizes power. And it feels like For me, even as a woman, I mean, this plays out, I think, for most people in this country. It's like, it feels like a lot of people are scrambling for power. Like, how can I have more money? That'll make me more powerful. How can I have dominance in my relationship or my family unit? How can I be the more powerful sibling? How can I be the more powerful romantic partner? How can I be the powerful parent? How can I be the most recognized person in my community? you see this play out on social media. I mean, it's another element of status. I mean, it ultimately is so much about status because it feels like so many people are fighting to be the most powerful and the most the high on, on the tier. And I think because we place so much emphasis on that in society, that does explain a lot of the aggression. And with that underlining pressure to become powerful. And also, I think a lot of it is like the self-made person and, and a lot of it more about doing things on your own and every man for himself type of mentality versus a community mentality about working together. I can only imagine that when you're growing up, if, if that's like the main thing that you're focused on, of course, you're going to want to be more aggressive and be constantly seeking out validation. And as it said here, if you're not getting validation because you don't find it in common outlets, let's say you don't feel recognized by your family, or you don't feel intelligent at school, or you don't have people that know how to even express validation for you, I can see how that would lead to a lot of this toxic masculinity, right? As I mentioned, the abuse and the harassment and the violence and the risk-taking, all of these things. It's I don't know if it's just a matter of not learning it. I think it does come down to not feeling validated, not feeling in control, and really wanting power by any means that you can get it.
1: I think also if we look at this sort of binary gender role system that we've all been indoctrinated into, and I'll say indoctrinated because I think you can embody whatever energetic properties you want, and you can be whatever sexuality whatever sexual preference you want i think there's as a sidebar but also related whitney there's a lot of controversial and differing viewpoints right now around gender non-binary and people like oh it's either male or female and like there's no spectrum and i i personally believe there's a spectrum for a lot of reasons i mean there's spiritual reasons i believe that mental reasons i believe that sexual reasons i believe that but I think lumping people into one of two boxes and binary thinking in general is causing a lot of problems for human society. That's my opinion. You have this choice or that choice. Pick one. I I just don't like it. I think that there's a lot of nuance and subtlety in terms of our identities and our sexualities and our emotional dynamics with people. But on that note, I I think that there still is a reinforcement on the binary side of, and you touched on this, you know, I, I think as a man... There's this idea of the accumulation of wealth, the accumulation of resources, the accumulation of material things like cars and guns and houses and security systems and tools and uh, you know man stuff. And that's how you prove your worth, right? That's That means I can provide for my partner. I can provide for my children. I can protect them. I can make sure that we are impervious to illness and disease and violence and marauders and God knows what. I mean, it's still... It's just a very archaic system of, if you don't meet these standards as a man, then you are worthless. And I think that causes a lot of that belief system, if you will, I think it causes a lot of mental health issues for men in this country, in this world, rather, not just America. And for women too, here are the standards of success or worthiness for your gender. And if you don't meet this criteria or these standards, therefore you are worthless And on a very fundamental level, I think that belief system that continues to get reinforced and the fact that there are any standards at all is really bad for our collective mental health, men and women.
0: And it keeps playing back to external validation. I also feel like that line in that article that said that because there's less social status attached to the feminine, women may enjoy more freedom to be fluid than men. And to your point, Jason, I feel like, Maybe there's like some resentment or something, <laughs> you know. It's like, as a guy, we're talking about like society's value and and culturally, there's a lot of evidence that men are still more valued, and that's hard for me to wrap my mind around as a woman because you know, I just don't believe it. I'm a huge believer in equality, but for a lot of people, they may view it that way: is that men are are more valuable, men are more powerful. Men have the higher social status. And I thought it was really fascinating that along with that, women may be given more freedom, that they have less pressure on them to be that feminine energy and and to go from hard to soft, you know, like all of these different ways that women can kind of experiment with themselves. And I, I do think that our culture doesn't give as much Room for men to do those things, and then it feels like if you are feminine, then you are are pushed into this box of being homosexual, right? Or as you said, there's there's the shame. But what if what if men want to be more fluid on the spectrum, but feel like they don't have permission or that they won't get the external validation that they want so badly?
1: There's so many mixed messages, though, even in that pantheon wit of. And who, who comes to mind immediately as you were describing that of, of being on a spectrum of fluidity, who is also a man was Prince. And I love Prince. You know that he's one of my favorite recording artists of all time. I mean, love Prince because there was an element of mystery and danger and sexual ferocity. And not only was he one of the most incredible musicians and songwriters ever, but I remember reading stories about Prince when he came out. And he was wearing like, you know, the leopard print thongs on stage and dressing very flamboyantly. And, and certainly, I feel kind of carrying the imagery and the ethos of glam rock of, you know, what David Bowie and T-Rex and the New York Dolls and a lot of the glam rock bands from the early 70s. I feel like Prince was really melding that with soul music and R&B and pop. Like he was the bridge between glam and carrying that into like hardcore pop RB music, like it was it was masterful what he did. But in the early days, you know, people were like, "Whatever, I don't want to use any slurs." But you know, who is this? You know, what is he? Is he gay? Is he what? You know, but I, I remember the conversation shifting. There was an interview with Snoop Dogg talking about Prince after Prince died, kind of reflecting this of like when Prince came out there, like, well, "What is this guy about? Like, is is he bisexual? Is he gay? What's he about?" And then they started noticing like all the women that Prince would get, like some of the most, whatever, gorgeous, successful women in the world. They're like, oh, yeah, Prince is dope. Prince is dope. Prince is dope. But it was like this idea that once Prince demonstrated his worth and value by fucking a bunch of beautiful women and having a bunch of beautiful women on his arm, they're like, oh, yeah, Prince is the shit. Oh, cool. He's not gay. It was this subtle thing of like, oh, cool, cool, cool. You proved you're not gay now and you have all these beautiful women that you're sleeping with. So like you get our validation now. It's very weird. You know what I mean? It's like certain people were not okay with Prince until it was like, oh, cool. He's definitely hetero now. He's just super flamboyant. It's, it's this weird mixed message of like, we talked about this in a previous episode of building up certain celebrities with fame and notoriety but then also looking for reasons to tear them down at the same time unless they like meet our standards of behavior. You know, and I look at Prince, it's like I could give a damn what Prince's sexuality was or who he was sleeping with or any of that stuff. The guy was an incredible musician. Like his music touched my soul. But for some people, it was like, "Oh, we need to figure out what is he about before we approve of him." It's just it's very confusing and very weird.
0: So how are you, as somebody put in, in one of the articles, I love this, freeing yourself from the shackles of what it traditionally means to act like a so-called man? Like, How did you figure that out for yourself? And how are you continuing to do that? What What do you think that you would like to let go of? And what are you working through?
1: What I'm really working on right now is this idea that my worth as a man is tied to what is happening in my career and how much success i have and how much money i'm making that is easily the biggest challenge that i'm still wrestling with is especially during the covid-19 pandemic of you know work being slow and career stuff kind of i don't know taking a downturn and things really slowing down i have been facing this old belief system this very deeply embedded belief system of that if I'm not constantly working, and I'm not constantly making money, and I'm not constantly in motion in terms of my creative output or generating income, then I am failing. That's the biggest thing right now, Whitney. It's not so much in terms of my emotional sensitivity or my flamboyance. I'm more comfortable than I've ever been with my level of emotional sensitivity and my Level of flamboyance and still getting questions like, Oh, are you gay? You know, I still get that. It's none of those things I wrestle with. What I wrestle with now is this old paradigm of my productivity and my value being associated to how much money I'm making and how successful I am in my career. That's the dragon that I'm staring down in terms of my masculinity. And it's hard.
0: It's that external validation,
1: right? 100%. And it's not just the external validation. It's that somehow there's this just, it's deeply embedded in my mind that, quote, as a man, if I'm not providing and making a lot of money and successful in my career, I'm a piece of shit. And I don't have any value in our society. Like I'm still, that is still a very deep belief system I'm battling in this moment.
0: And how are you navigating that?
1: For me, if I can acknowledge the fact that I contribute to the world and contribute to the lives of people around me and not just the people I love and care for, but just the world in general. If I'm not being productive in the sense of making money or as much money as I want, let's be more honest about that, or not having the kind of career success that I have had in the past, some of the things that I've been doing, like, geez, I I don't know, you know, a few weeks ago on my newsletter, I gave away A bunch of cookbooks and courses and stuff for free. It was like, hey, if you guys are at home and you need mental health resources and you need recipes, here's some stuff to help you out. And you would think, oh, well, why didn't you charge for that? Because that would be a way for you to feel more valuable and make money. But there was just something in me that's like, I just really want to be of service right now and uplift people and give them resources. And to that end, I've been really focusing on just trying to be of service instead of being so wound up in making money volunteering to feed the homeless, the houseless, doing animal rescue, and trying to give my love and my support in ways that are not necessarily so Mm. one-pointed in like, this has to make me money. This has to further my career. This has to like advance my cause in some way. I think I've just started to shift my focus wit into the question of, how can I be of service to people in need? And it's not making me money. It's not furthering my career, but in some ways it is making me feel as if I'm having an impact in a positive and loving way on the lives of other people and other animals. And that has been helping me through this period of not getting lost in feelings of worthlessness.
0: Mm. Well, it is an ongoing journey and I think it's an unfolding and a daily practice of self-reflection. And I I think it's a wonderful example that you're giving, which is that you don't have it all figured out, but you're giving yourself permission to explore it and to tune into your yourself in a deeper way and not try to like wear this mask. You know, I also think about Lewis Howe's book, The Mask of Masculinity, which I have not read, but for me the gist of it is is how a lot of men feel that pressure to wear a mask so that that they are perceived as being this masculine person that that our society has kind of taught us exists, right? But what's underneath that? And giving yourself permission as a man to value yourself on an authentic level and to be very genuine and experience yourself at, beneath that mask. And I think this is such an important conversation. I don't know how many men listen to our podcast, but hopefully those that do have have enjoyed this episode. And, and then for me as a woman, it's also very important. It's helpful to understand the men in our lives, whether it's our fathers or our male partners, whether they're business partners or romantic partners, our children, if you have sons and all these different men that are in our lives, realizing that there are pressures for them too. I think, I think there's a lot of emphasis put on the feminine struggle. And I think part of that is because of the lack of equality that women have had. But also, it seems like, and maybe this is just because I'm a woman, but there's just so much emphasis on women's appearances and struggling with things like that. But I guess I am trying to be more aware of what men are going through as well and realizing that just because they don't verbalize that they're struggling doesn't mean that they are. And one thing I'm really grateful for is, is you, Jason, for being so open and honest about your struggles. I mean, I think sometimes you may perceive that as a weakness, but I think that's a massive strength and a beautiful example because, sure, culturally, people may think just because you are an emotional person that makes you feminine unless perhaps you're gay or something, right? But aside from that, I think that you're giving a lot of men permission to express themselves and you are very drawn to a lot of emotional men. So you're surrounded by them. So I'm curious as we wrap up this episode, if there's anything else that you would like to share for the women listening and for the men listening on how you have learned to express yourself in the ways that you do and to tap into yourself on a daily level and, and anything that you've learned from the men around you and as you've watched their evolutions as well?
1: It's a great question. I think before I want to dig into answering it, Whitney, I, I want to say for the men and women listening to this episode, that the danger, if you will, I think is getting into a fixed role and not being able to make decisions from your own agency and your own autonomy. And what I mean by that is, as a heterosexual male, you ought to aspire to be, have, and do these things. As a homosexual female lesbian, you ought to have, see, be, and do these things. I think that there is a lot of subjugation, no matter the gender and no matter the sexuality. I see it because I have... So many friends that have different beliefs and different sexualities and different ways they identify themselves, I feel, first of all, incredibly blessed to have these kind of open conversations with people of different perspectives, sexualities, and gender identifications. It's wonderful. But the one thing that I think that we all can struggle with sometimes is because I have this label or this title or identify as this thing I ought to behave, act, do, and want these certain things. And that is a very dangerous place to exist because we exchange our autonomy, our free thinking, and our personal agency in exchange for trying to live up to a title or a label. It's a very dangerous thing because then we get aligned with the herd mentality of, oh, well, everyone else who's a lesbian is doing this, or everyone else who's a homosexual man is doing this. Everyone who's a bisexual is doing this. Everyone who's an alpha male is doing this. And on that tip, recently, I had three different people, independent of one another, say, oh, you ride a motorcycle? I was like, yeah, I've rode motorcycles for 21 years. They're like, oh, I, did, I didn't peg you for like a guy who rode a motorcycle. And I was like, what kind of guy is that? Like Not being combative, but like, what do you, what do you mean I didn't peg you for a guy? Like, oh, well, well I don't know. You just like seem like, I don't know, sensitive and emotional. I'm like, okay, sensitive and emotional. Men can't ride motorcycles. And then I start to challenge people. I'm like, where are you going with this? oh, where you're going with this is you're under a mental conditioning that like only like alpha dudes ride motorcycles and like fast cars and like to shoot guns and like sports. Well, my thing is like, I love fast cars. I love riding motorcycles. I love going to the shooting range and I love basketball and love sports. And I like the quote alpha male shit. You know, if you like hashtag alpha male on Instagram, a lot of that stuff I like do I identify as an alpha male? Fuck no, I don't. Because an alpha male to me typically is a person who needs to go into a room and dominate energetically or physically and subjugate everyone in the room to their presence. Like, yeah, I'm here. I'm in charge. I'm going to take over. I've never been that guy. I don't want to be that guy. It's not part of my nature. Are there moments in life where I feel like I've needed to leverage my authority and my energy and my power in certain ways? Absolutely but it's not under the guise of trying to subjugate anyone or overthrow or put people under my thumb. So it's interesting with because I've had people, especially in quarantine, I take my motorcycle out and there's been this idea of like, oh, you don't seem like the kind of guy that would do that. And I'm like, I am who I am and I like what I like. And I don't give a fuck how you label me. And I think for all of us, men, women, however you identify yourself, the more that we can find what we love, that what our soul is calling for, like fuck the labels. And let's try and break free from this idea that I am this thing, therefore I ought to act like that thing. Be who you are. Find who you are. Let the process of evolution and change and growth unfold as it is, and be unapologetic about the things you love. And if you blow people's minds and you shatter their illusions and expectations of who they thought you were, fantastic. And that's something I actually take pride in, not because I'm trying to shatter people's expectations or illusions of whatever they think I ought to be Whitney, but just because I love what I love. And if it bothers people or freaks them out or confuses them, so be it. I got to live my life. And that's ultimately, I think, the final message here that I want to relate to everyone is just find out what you love, listen to your soul, be who you are, and fuck what people think.
0: Was there a a literal mic drop after you said that?
1: (laughs) Do you want me to just throw the mic across the room right now? No, no, I
0: don't. (laughs) That might be uh, toxic masculinity, Jason. It would, it would, it would, it
1: would.
0: <laughs> but I I feel like this was a really enlightening conversation. I certainly learned something new. I really did not know about that prison story. And for some reason, that was really fascinating for me. I, and just taught me something new about you. And I, I think it's just incredibly important that we explore all different elements of what people are struggling with and remind them of exactly what you just said, that letting go of any shame and tapping into who we really are and owning that. And it's not always that easy. Jason, you've been working on this your whole life. (laughs) It's not like you just snapped your finger and had these realizations. And even with the realizations, it doesn't mean that you're not continuing to struggle with it. I think the benefit of awareness and self-expression is that it's basically giving yourself more permission to be who you are and to explore it and to own it and and to reflect on it. And that's a nice alternative to trying to bottle everything up and, and wearing a mask. You know, I think a lot of us are just trying to survive, to protect ourselves, to find our way in the world. And we can certainly relate to wanting to hide away and to project ourselves as being something that we're not. We've each done that in our own ways. But I found that the more that I release any of these cultural narratives and own what really works for me and feels right for me, the better I feel each day. That's ultimately what it is. It's not about perfecting ourselves and and feeling good all the time. But for me, it's about how can I live in a way that makes me feel my best the most consistently. And I know for you, Jason, it's, it's been you, a lot of the things that you've mentioned today You have really impacted your mental health. And what I would like to see with you is, as I've said many times, I would love to see you improving your mental health and having consistent, better mental health days. And I think a lot of the things that you expressed today are things that you are currently struggling with.
1: Yeah. And it's also a real-time regulating of my mental health in terms of my belief systems and watching that when I believe a thought and I assign it as truth, how quickly I can spiral with that. And here's what I mean specifically. If I look at people in our field of whatever, health, wellness, entrepreneurship, and I see that there are people that are, quote, doing better than me because they have a nicer house, nicer cars, beautiful wife, family, like whatever the things are then I find myself going into, he must be better than you. He must be a better man than you. He must be more valuable in the world because look what he's done. He's done, quote, better than you. And then the danger is twofold when I start to observe those things, is that I start to believe that's true, that he's, quote, better than me or more valuable than me or has proved his masculinity in the world, leveraged it more effectively than I have. But also that, oh, I must, and we talked about this in a previous episode, I must need to pattern my life or look at his methods, his strategies, his work ethic, how he built his business and co-opt that and use that as a blueprint for how to be as successful or worthy or valuable as he is. And that's very dangerous because then the aptitude is buying into our unworthiness, using our unworthiness as fuel to be better than someone else. But then sometimes through trying to be better than that other person, fueled by the unworthiness, we adopt aspects of their identity, their practice, and their methodologies, and we lose ourselves in the process. And I'm very aware of that for myself, of being envious or comparing myself to other people. And then at times, in certain ways, trying to figure out how to be more like them. But I don't want to do that anymore. It's like, I want to be more of who I am and continually uncover the layers that I've built over whatever that is, my deepest sense of self or my truest essence, rather than, oh, I want his life, so therefore I ought to be like him. And that, to me, that's a fallacy and a very dangerous thing that I'm becoming more aware of and kind of pulling myself out of that well before I get too deep. That's one thing I've noticed that I'm improving at. I'm not great at it yet, but I'm improving at it. So we would love to hear from you, dear listener, your perspectives on gender roles, toxic masculinity, any points that maybe hit deep in your heart or your soul during this episode today. And if there are any other subjects you want us to expound on, maybe you'd like to hear an episode all about the crazy stories of my dad's life. Happy to share that if, if you, <laughs> you want us to go down that road. But if this has sparked your curiosity, sparked your heart, sparked a deeper conversation, you can always reach us at our website, which is wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You'll find all of the show notes from all of our episodes, all of the books, resources, and articles we mentioned in today's episode. And you can also reach us there at our email, which is hello at com. And you can find us for even more free resources on our website, like our eBooks, You Are Enough, and our programs like the Consistency Code, and Wellness Warrior Training. We are all over social media as well, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, at Wellevator, and we are always continually on the hunt, on the lookout for ways to explore this crazy, wonderful, confounding, and beautiful thing called life. So if there are any subjects you'd like us to cover in future episodes here on This Might Get Uncomfortable, feel free to shoot us an email, shoot us a DM, send a homing pigeon, definitely don't come visit us in person yet unless you want to keep a six foot distance. (laughs) Hopefully that'll be over soon. But we do appreciate your listenership. We appreciate your follows on social media. We appreciate your wonderful emails. And we will see you again soon to get even more uncomfortable because we seem to be doing a great job at that together. And by the way, listener, thank you for getting uncomfortable with us. If there's anything here that's made you go deeper, made you excavate some things inside of yourself you haven't thought about or touched on in a long time, we want to give you credit and acknowledge you for being on this journey of getting uncomfortable and growing with us. So until the next episode, we love you, we thank you, and we'll catch you again soon.
0: Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.